We are starting our study tonight on the Old Testament types and shadows. We, we um, last study, we did kind of an overview and an introduction to this third and final segment of our study in Christ in the Old Testament. We spent some amount of time together studying all of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Christ. And then we, in our second segment, we studied the the actual appearances, the personal appearances of Christ in the Old Testament and what theologically are identified as Christophanies. And uh, so we've saved for this final segment the types and shadows, the symbolic uh, representations of Christ in the Old Testament. And we, I gave kind of a basic working definition for our two key terms, types and shadows. Type is simply a prophetic symbol showing a specific aspect of the person or work of Christ. And the word shadow is just a parallel word. It means essentially the same thing, but it in particular emphasizes that these, these symbolic types point forward in history to a connected, greater coming reality in Christ, meaning these are all meant to point forward to him in some specific aspect of his person or his work. I do want to emphasize, uh, as we're digging into these, that um, as we study the types, just remember they're, they're completely different than the Christophanies. In a Christophany, it's the actual person of Christ that appeared at key moments in the Old Testament. In these types, these symbols, what we're, what we're dealing with are things that are not Christ, and he is not that thing but they are connected to him, they're symbolically related to him, and they symbolically, symbolically in advance of his, uh, his incarnation, they reveal something uh, very important about him. So um, in our breaking down of the various types and shadows, I came up with seven uh, categories or, or seven different uh, ways of, of cataloging all of the types and shadows. And um, I think the one I'm going to do first is Christ in the Old Testament things, just because it's the most varied of the, of the seven categories that I identified last time. And uh, in that sense, it's uh, possibly the most interesting of the seven categories, just because of the variety of symbols that we find in that, in that um, catalog. So let's start with that one. And the very first one, I'm going to give you a total of 12 examples. Uh, remember, uh, I had mentioned last time that there's no way, I, we, it would just take way too much time for us to look at literally every single type and shadow of Christ. So I've picked out representative types and shadows. What are maybe the most obvious ones and in, in, uh, in cataloging them, maybe the most uh, significant ones. So I picked out 12 for Old Testament things that, that represent Christ symbolically. And the first one, we're going to start as we should in the book of Genesis chapter 1, right in the very beginning of the book. Um, I had mentioned in our overview and in our introduction that um, Christ is woven as the main theme throughout the Old Testament. So we should expect to see him right at the beginning of of God's revealed word because, of course, what's described at the beginning is one of the most important things that's ever happened, and that is the original natural creation 
of the universe and all of existence, uh, the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so we should, we should expect to see Christ represented in that in some important way. So let's read just the first three verses of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, in this passage, there is, there is a, a complete representation of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is, of course, represented very directly in verse 1. Uh, in the beginning, God created. Uh, then you see the Spirit of God highlighted and emphasized in his hovering over the face of the waters in verse 2. But you see, of course, a, a representation of the presence and activity of the Son of God, who is later by John the Apostle identified as the Word of God, in how God actually went about creating what he created. And in that representation of the word of God, there is a type or an image of Christ, not so much the person of Christ, but a a very direct connection to him. And we'll find that in verse three. God said, and this is as the creation account actually begins. This is how God created. We've talked about this passage before, but let me reemphasize it. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now the the phrase that's quoting what God actually said in that original uh, moment of creation, what theologians have called the creative fiat, which is simply the, the word of creative declaration that contained the fullness of God's power that actually brought about the existence of what we now call creation is quoted here in our translation as let there be light. So you have one, two, three, four words in English that are really kind of dependent upon the wording from the King James Version. Um, that let there be is kind of a, an old English poetic way of describing the action that's taking place and what God actually said. But in the original text, as God uh, actually spoke his creative fiat, it's more direct. It's more, there's more of an action involved, a more dramatic action involved than is obvious in the wording of our translation. And it's really captured by a single word, but seeing that word not so much as a noun, but as a verb. Um, That word is the word light. So what God actually said in that moment of creation was light. But he said it as, again, an action word, as, as a command that is causing something to spring into action, something to occur that begins the ball rolling, so to speak, in all that's going to follow in chapter one in terms of the the various activities of God in creation. The very first thing that happened was the light that sprang into existence because God declared it to be so. God said, let there be light, or God said, light, 
and there was light. Now, I see Christ symbolically typified by that single word that God spoke. And, of course, uh, we have the benefit of some New Testament information that, that uh, draws that connection for us. So let's, let's keep our idea from Genesis 1, 1 through 3 in mind, and let's head back to the New Testament and look in the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look in chapter 4. And we'll read from verse 1. This is, of course, the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And Paul draws a correlation in this passage, as we're about to read, between the person of Christ and what Moses by the Spirit of God described, because of course, no human being was present in the moment of Genesis 1-3 when God spoke that original creative word. There were angels present as witnesses of creation, and we learn that later in the book of Job, but no human beings yet existed, and so we're, we're leaning upon a revelation from God to Moses about what happened in that moment. But now Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is going to give us more details than uh, Moses gave in the original account. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry and the context, all of the, the latter part of chapter 3 that immediately precedes this verse is all about a comparison and a contrast that Paul is making between the ministry of the Old Covenant and the ministry of the New Covenant. The ministry of the Old Testament compared to in contrast with the ministry of the New Testament. So Paul is now speaking on behalf of the New Testament, speaking on behalf of the New Covenant ministry. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, and here he, he's referring back again to chapter 3, where he talks about how when the scriptures are read in the synagogues, the people that are attending the synagogue there apparently to worship God we're not getting the point of those readings because there's a veil over their minds which is separating them from a true comprehension of what the scriptures were always pointing forward to, which is, of course, Christ. So he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, and here he's not referencing God the Father, he's referencing Satan as a little g, a lowercase g, God of this world. Kind of, uh, not that Satan is of God, but that he is in that sense ruling over and controlling the hearts and minds of many in the human population. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, and then verse 6 is where I find the connection to Genesis 1-3 that we've already read. Genesis 1-3, and God said in the initial moment of creation, let there be light, or God said, light. Here, Paul says in verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what Paul has done here is he's connected two realities, a natural one that has a spiritual origin and a spiritual one that has a spiritual origin. The natural reality that he's referencing happened in real world history at the beginning of creation. It's the moment God spoke the creative word. Here he describes it more than exactly quotes it. The description he gives is what God is essentially doing in that moment is saying, let light shine out of darkness with using the creative word light. That's the natural reality, but it has a spiritual origin because God is causing that to happen. God is creating in that moment by bringing light into existence in an otherwise darkened existence. But now he connects it to a greater spiritual reality that we had to wait all the way until the new covenant was established, all the way until the time of the New Testament to understand the connection between the new and the old. And the new is this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm particularly glad that this is the first type that we're studying because it's one of the greatest of all the types. And the type is simply this. The original creation came about because of light springing into existence by the creative word of God. Now, Paul is comparing that to not another natural creation like the original one, but to it's pointing forward to, the original creation is pointing forward to a new and greater spiritual creation, what we now call the new creation that's in Christ. And how that is described for us is identical, but with one important detail difference to the original creation springing into existence. The original creation started with what we can now call natural light. The new creation begins with what we call spiritual light. And where do we find the source of that spiritual light? According to Paul's description, the spiritual light is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this light is exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ, it's revealed through the face of Jesus Christ. Now, why, why the emphasis on his face? Does that mean that if you, have, if you happen to actually meet Jesus, I'm talking about 
after his death and resurrection and after his ascension, if Jesus were to appear to you today, do you suppose that the only place on his resurrected and ascended body that light would be emanating from would be his face? His whole body is radiating heavenly, glorious light. When, when um, and Paul's had a personal experience of this. He's writing this in, on the basis of his personal experience. Uh, on the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him in powerful revelation of his glory. So powerful that it literally blinded Paul for three days as he later described that Christ was shining in his glory brighter than the light of the noonday sun. But that light wasn't just only emanating from this portion of his body, his face only. His entire body emanates and radiates light because his entire body is filled to the fullness with the glory of God. So why the emphasis is on to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? The emphasis on face is all about relationship. Relationship in the sense of when we meet with each other, when we connect to each other, when we speak to each other, when we have fellowship with each other, we do so in what we call face-to-face relationship. So the whole point of this is to bring us into this new and greater relationship with God by having a face-to-face spiritual relationship with the Son of God But as we stand before his face, what we're seeing, what we're beholding is an emanation, a revelation of God's glory. And then we are gaining knowledge of God's glory by beholding it in the face of Christ. Now, the emphasis on the key word here, knowledge, is just that how many of us have had this actual physical experience of seeing Christ face to face like Paul did on the road to Damascus so far? The answer is no one in this room has had that experience, including me. We will one day all share that experience when the Lord returns or if the Lord takes us at the end of our life before he returns. But until that moment, the likelihood is that none of us will ever have that experience And so the emphasis for us is, does that mean we can't have a face-to-face relationship with Christ and only Paul can? No, the point is we have a face-to-face relationship with Christ and with the glory of God emanating from him, but we do so as we're beholding the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Meaning as I read and comprehend spiritually by the grace of God what has been revealed about the Son in the Word of God. I am seeing him face to face, even though my physical eyes aren't perceiving him yet. My spiritual eyes, so to speak, the eyes of my heart, as Paul later or in other places describes, um, my, the eyes of my heart are perceiving him. Now, um, let's look over one chapter to chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll give you a third reference. This one is probably well familiar to all of you, but there's a detail. I've mentioned this detail before, but it's in the context of other teachings, and I wouldn't necessarily expect you to remember it. 
but it's an important detail connected to what now in chapter 5 Paul is still teaching on the same theme. Verse 17 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Um, this verse is in my personal top 10 list of New Testament favorite verses. It's just, it's, it's a glorious verse and it's so significant and important to us. It describes the transforming experience that we have when we're truly born again, when we're truly saved. But the way the translation is worded is somewhat misleading and fails to make the same emphasis that Paul made as he was actually writing it to connect it back to what we were just reading in chapter 4. Paul didn't write this. He did not write, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and I'm going to emphasize these two words, he is a new creation. If he had written that, the emphasis would have been this. When you're born again, when you're introduced into Christ in a saving new covenant connected relationship with Christ, then you individually become a new creation. Now that is true. It does happen in exactly that way. When you are born again, you personally become a new creation, but that's not the point Paul is making here. You can make that as a secondary point and derive that secondary point from what Paul says. But what Paul says is more powerful. It's more all-encompassing. He's not emphasizing a personal experience here in the sense of, I just want to tell you how important it is to be born again and to be saved. When that happens, you personally become a new creation. God remakes you. He restarts your life. Yes, that's true. But what he actually says is this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, and then kind of like a pause, a new creation. He's not emphasizing that you are a new creation. He's emphasizing that in Christ, there is a new creation. Meaning that just as God started the original creation with the word light, God started a new creation with the word who is Christ himself. And if you are introduced into him, of course, you are introduced into the new creation. The new creation doesn't start when you're born again. That's the point I'm making. The new creation started when Christ rose from the dead. And then everyone who by saving grace and faith believes in him, in his death, in his resurrection, they are then joined with him they're introduced into him, and in being introduced into him, they are introduced into this grand, amazing, awesome new creation. Of course, you know, we can ask the question, how do you know? How, can you feel it? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? And the idea is that the new creation is a spiritual one at this point, and it is running parallel at this moment in history to the old, original, natural creation. In a sense, it's a layering of two creations at the same time. So I am, I'm kind of a mixed being, and you are too. 
My body is still part of the natural original creation. Oh, that it were part of the new creation. But I have to wait for the second coming of Christ and for the resurrection of my body, which will be like his resurrected body. But my heart is as new as the new creation is new and is waiting for a new body to be joined to that new heart in that future day. Now, one last passage real quickly, and this one I know you're all familiar with, John chapter 1, verse 1, just to show, again, the connection that not only Paul draws, but John draws between the original creation in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, and then the uh, new creation that we now experience in Christ. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, that's Christ, the Word of God, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, the Word, meaning God made everything through his Word. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light. And here again is the connection to the word and the light of God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, just like in the original creation. There was a dark background, and God spoke the word light, and light sprang into existence against that dark background. And now in the new covenant, uh, there's a darkened background of fallenness and human corruption of sin, and the light of the new creation springs into existence against that darkened background. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, that's our first one. Let's move to our second one. So the first one was, and what I think I'll do, uh, like I did with previous segments of our study, is I'll print out for you the outlines of all of the types that we cover and I'll bring it uh, Lord willing next study and um, so you'll have a a quick and easy reference to go back and and look over these passages. So our first one is the light of creation uh, both in the old covenant being connected to the light of creation in the new covenant and the emphasis or the focus is on Christ as the light who begins a new creation. All right, the the second one is also in the book of Genesis, but let's go to chapter 2 now. And this one is um, the type that we identify with what was known in the Garden of Eden as the tree of life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now there's a a whole in-depth study that can be done on these two trees and their relationship and 
the two trees relationship to the garden and the two trees relationship to Adam and to Eve. Uh, but for our sake, I just want to draw the contrast between, and, and of course there are many other trees besides these two, but these two are highlighted and these are the only two at this point in history that are named. The other trees will each gain their name as Adam and his descendants eventually name all of the trees, just like they name, just like Adam named all of the animals. Um, and we still, of course, have names for all of the trees. And I'm not talking about personal names like each individual tree, but categories of trees, types of trees. But these two are unique. They're distinct. There's not, there's not multiples of these trees. Like how many, how many pine trees are there in the world? How many apple trees? You know, how many birch trees? But for these two, there's only these two, and there were no... Um, there were no descendants by seed of these two trees because they serve a special purpose in the garden. Uh, one of these two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as you're well familiar, was designed by the Lord as a testing tree for Adam and for Eve. And of course, they miserably failed the test. The other tree is not a testing tree. The other tree serves a different purpose. It's identified by a different title or designation, therefore, and it's called the tree of life. And of course, we've chosen to name our local fellowship by that symbolic designation, the tree of life. And there's a reason we have. But let's uh, read a couple of other passages connected to this one, because I see Christ represented by that tree. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Now this continues the story in the garden. And by this point, the passage we're about to read, by this point, Adam and Eve have failed the test in relationship to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They've taken the fruit of it, and in that circumstance, Eve was deceived, Adam was not, but they both eat the fruit, and they both now are bearing the consequence of their decision, and in Adam's case in particular, of his sin. And um, the Lord has appeared in what we identified in our second segment of studies the Christophanies, the Lord has appeared personally in a Christophany and he has held Adam and Eve and even the serpent that deceived Eve. He's held them accountable and pronounced judgment upon each of the three of them. And then at the end, after that pronouncement of judgment, we're going to pick up the story in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, and then the sentence tails off at that point, meaning there's no real period at the end of the sentence. And in our translation, there's even a, there's even a, a visual way to represent that. There's just a line after the word forever as if God stop speaking in the middle of a sentence because the rest of the sentence is implied or indicated by what he's just said. The problem here is that Adam and Eve have sinned. They've fallen. They're corrupted now. And if, if they were to, in that fallen condition, eat of the tree of life, they would live forever in their fallen condition. And it's not the Lord's intention or plan or purpose for them to do so. So then we have... Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him, and of course, 
he's going to take the woman with him. The Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The emphasis is on the man here. Why? Because the man was responsible for the sin that has now broken the relationship with the Lord, that has damaged the relationship with the Lord. Um, Eve did the wrong thing, but again, as Paul later describes in, in the book of 1 Timothy, she was deceived and therefore less responsible than Adam was, who simply willfully chose to sin in this circumstance. So he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden, in verse 24, and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, um, there's an important detail in verse 24. I'll just briefly describe the, the practicality of what's just happened. And then I want to talk about the detail uh, that is really important for us not to miss. And we're going to use that detail to connect to other concepts later in God's word. So Adam and Eve have sinned. The Lord is holding them accountable. He pronounces judgment. And then he makes a decision, the Lord does, in his infinite wisdom to eject, to drive out Adam from the garden and to take Eve with him. So now Adam is going to live on the wrong side of the barrier that surrounds the wall that surrounds the Garden of Eden. We know it's a wall because the, the actual name of Garden of Eden in the original, um, in the original translation is a, it's, it's a walled garden. It's, a, it's separated from the rest of the world by a barrier. And there is an entryway to the garden and an exit to the garden. And it's described here um, in verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim. So what's happening here is there's like a gateway or an opening to leave the garden or to re-enter the garden. But because the Lord doesn't want Adam and Eve to re-enter the garden at this point, why? Because if they re-enter the garden, they're going to be tempted to eat again of the tree of life, and they're going to be in a circumstance if they ever accomplish that where they will forever live in their fallen, corrupted condition. And the Lord has a saving and redeeming purpose. And so he places a guard, a spiritual guard, at the entryway to the garden so that before Adam and Eve can re-enter the garden, they would have to, have to encounter this guardian. And the guardian is identified here as he placed... In verse 24, the cherubim. Now, what are cherubim? I think most of you are familiar with it. Um, we get our, still our English word cherub from the, the Hebrew word cherubim. Um, what's a cherub in our culture, in our society? It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a chubby little cute baby with little baby wings on its back that you typically see on Valentine's Day cards, shooting an arrow, little tiny arrow with a little tiny bow through a human heart or a symbolic representation of a human heart in order to create love between two individuals, right? 
That's not what a cherub actually is. That's just, I don't know. I don't know the story. Maybe I should study it and figure it out someday. I don't know how the actual biblical representation of cherubim uh, came to be represented by chubby little flying babies, but that's not what they actually look like. Um, if, you, if you study the other passages, like, for instance, they're represented in the book of Ezekiel, the prophecy of Isaiah, they're represented in the book of Revelation. Um, they, are, they are identified uh, in the book of Revelation as these four mysterious and amazing creatures, special category of creation. There's not hundreds of these. There's not even dozens of these, let alone there's not thousands of these. There's only, there's only a, a handful of these, and they're I won't go into all the detail of what they look like and, and actually what they do, but, but you might remember they're, they're the, the beings in God's creation that are created for a special purpose to be physically closest in proximity to the throne of God. So you have the central throne of God in heaven. If we were able to visit God's throne in heaven, we'd see the central throne at the, at the hub of all existence and the one who is seated upon that throne. And then closest to the throne, you would see these living creatures that have wings and are filled with eyes and they're, they're flying around the throne and they're making a very specific kind of declaration about the one who sits upon the throne. And then beyond that, you'd see the 24 thrones that are, that are populated by 24 elders. And then around that, in, a, in an even greater concentric circle, you'd see the, the myriads of angels holy angels, and the myriads of the redeemed. But these cherubim are amazing, special, angelic creatures, even unlike other angels. But the detail here in verse 24, I don't want us to miss, is this word cherubim is plural. It's not singular. It's not, and he placed a cherub at the gateway to the garden on the east side of the garden. He placed cherubim, meaning how many were there at the gateway? Minimum of two. Could have been more. We're not told exactly how many were placed there, but there's a minimum of two of them that were placed there. And I tend to think there were exactly two. Why? Where do we ever see, other than the throne of God in heaven and the representations of that in the the revelatory visions that were given to Ezekiel and to Isaiah and to John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, where do we see a pair of cherubim ever represented in Scripture? We see that, and we'll later connect this again uh, when we get to this part of our study of, of the types, when we get to the study of the structures in the Old Testament that, that represent Christ symbolically and in one of the details of the two most important Old Testament structures, which are the tabernacle of God and the temple of God. You all are familiar. We've talked about this many times. In the tabernacle and the temple, you have a representation of what God calls his house. And his house, as it's physically represented on earth during that period of history, his house has two rooms and only two rooms. There's an outer room and there's an inner room inside his house. And then there's a courtyard surrounding his house. So in the two rooms, you have a, what we would call a public room, just like you have what we call now in our culture a living room. When people come to visit your house, 
You don't immediately march them back into the bathroom or the bedroom and, and talk with them there. You have a common public shared space for anyone that's invited into your house anyway. And um, you sit down with people and share with them there. God had such a room. It was called the holy place. Specific items of furniture there that we'll get into and show how each part of the house and each item of furniture has a very distinct connection symbolically as a type to Christ. But in the inner room, there's only a single item of furniture. There's no bed in what we would have called the most private room, the bedroom, but it's not for God, the bedroom. Why isn't it the bedroom for God? Why isn't there a bed in the holy of holies? God never sleeps. He's never tired in that sense. There is, however, a single item of furniture that is a chair. And that chair that was represented both in the tabernacle and the temple is what we call the Ark of the Covenant, which was essentially a box with a lid on it upon which God sat, symbolically represented by his Christophany presence. So you have kind of an overlap here between symbol and reality. He sat on top of the lid of that box, spiritually speaking, as the pillar of cloud and fire descended upon the tabernacle and sat directly on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But on either side of the box, there was what? It built into the box itself, kind of, kind of coming up on either side of the box, were cherubim. So you have a special category of angel on one side of the box, a special category of angel on the other side of the box. Why? Because that seat on earth in the tabernacle, in the, in the temple, points to the throne of God, which is the seat of God in heaven. God has a seat, not because we have seats. We have seats, why? Because we get tired, we get worn out. You know, you can only stand for so long, you sit down in order to rest. God doesn't rest in the sense of needing rest. He rests for symbolic purposes, and he rests and sits upon his seat because it is the throne of the kingdom in which he, he enacts kingdom business from that throne. But the two cherubim on either side are present there. And what's interesting here is the same exact special beings that everywhere in scripture are only found in heaven surrounding the throne of God now show up at the beginning of human history and they're stationed as special guardians to the Garden of Eden. And what is it specifically that they're guarding? Just like in heaven, if they function as guardians, they are guarding the throne of God in the presence of the one who sits upon the throne. Not that God needs them to guard him, but that's all symbolic for kingdom imagery in our minds. What are they guarding here? They're guarding the tree. They're guarding the one who is directly related in symbol to that tree. The tree in the garden was the source of never-ending life, which we would now call in a new covenant, greater reality context, eternal life. So it's naturally representing that concept there in the form of a symbolic tree, but it's pointing to the person of Christ himself. Now, one last passage. This is at the very end. Bless you. 
the very end of uh, the book of Revelation 22, last chapter in the Bible. This imagery remains important to the Lord right up until the end of what he's chosen to reveal. I'll read from verse 16. This is how the Bible ends. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Meaning, the, the priority concern of the Holy Spirit is matched by the priority concern of the true church. They're both anxiously awaiting the second arrival of the Son of God in his, what we call his second coming. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. That's the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So the idea is the Lord is warning everyone who reads this book of Revelation that right handling of the book, and I'm not just talking about interpretation, but literally not adding to and not taking away, not, not twisting it, not tweaking it, not, not uh, manipulating the book for their own purposes. Uh, because if you're caught doing that by the Lord, um, what will be taken away is not just words from the book, but your own individual share in the tree of life. Now, essentially, right up to the very end, what the Lord is doing here in the book of Revelation is he's referencing Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. And he's saying this is, a, this is an enduring symbol from the beginning of what I've revealed in history to the end of what I've revealed in history. And it all has to do with having a share in the tree of life, meaning access to the tree, having the freedom by God's grace to approach the tree, take from its fruit, eat of its unique and special fruit, and receive the blessing and benefit that is greater than all other blessings, which is the blessing of eternal life. And of course, we understand that that is symbolic imagery because it's not actually a tree which gives eternal life. It's Christ himself. He is the exclusive source of eternal life, but this is portrayed for us here in this wonderful imagery. All right, let's go to our third one. Genesis also, but this time we're going a little bit forward into chapter 28. 28. Genesis 28. This is from the experience of a covenant man, Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Genesis 28, I'll start reading in verse 10. 
Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, and what he has here is what I've termed for our understanding in other studies, I've termed, he has what we call a spiritual dream, a revelatory dream, a dream in which the Lord is speaking directly to his heart in the context of him not being awake, but asleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder. And you, you might notice in the, um, in the side reference or the reference in our translation at the bottom of the page, a ladder or it could have been translated a flight of steps. There was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And here, even though we've talked about how scripture uses the word heaven in three different ways, it's important for us to, to, to be on the same page as, as to which of those three ways Moses is using the term heaven here. So heaven can be the, the atmosphere surrounding the planet, what, what we call air that we breathe, but it's limited. You know, it's, it, it's not that deep. It's only, only a few miles deep. And then above and beyond that is what we call space. That's the heavens that are described in scripture, what Paul later references as the second heaven. And then the third and the greatest heaven, which is above the other two, but is essentially spiritual. It has actual spatial reality, but it's a spiritual reality, not a physical one, not a natural one. I'll say it that way, not a natural one, is what we call heaven, the, the, the place where the throne of God is established and from where God rules over all of creation. It's that third heaven that's referenced here in verse 12. He dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, it's just an interesting detail that's added for our benefit. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which Uliah will give to you and to your offspring. And he goes on and gives him additional covenant promises. All right, so he sees in a dream, he sees a ladder that, that starts on earth, set up on earth, and it stretches as far as to heaven itself, which is a non-possible thing in terms of could you, could you, if you had enough resources at your disposal, could you build a ladder that would physically reach from the earth even to the second heavens? Eh, possibly with modern technology. You know, they, there's some scientists that have speculated about building like a ladder type system to the space station, for instance. But that's way beyond our present capability. But theoretically, you could build a ladder to the second heaven, but could you ever, I don't care if you gave humanity a million years to so-called evolve in, in technology sense, 
Uh, could you build a ladder from this earth to the throne of God in heaven? And the answer is no, because one place is essentially natural and the other is essentially spiritual. No ladder can cross that barrier between natural reality and spiritual reality except this ladder, which is unique. This ladder somehow connects the earth to heaven and heaven to earth and connects it as what we would call a bridge, a bridge between heaven and earth. And upon that bridge, there are travelers in his dream. And those travelers are the angels of God. Why are they traveling on that bridge? The, the inference, it's not detailed for us in the experience, but the inference is they're doing the business of heaven. They're leaving the throne of God under assignment from the Lord, and those assignments have to do with things that are taking place on earth. So they travel that ladder or that bridge from heaven down to earth, and when they're done with their assignments, they return the same way on that same bridge, but now traveling back to heaven to, in a sense, report back to the Lord in heaven, like you see represented, for instance, in Job chapters 1 and 2. They report back to the Lord and then receive further assignments from him. Now, let's turn over from there to the Gospel of John. And some of you may have seen this connection already, but if you haven't, it's a, it's a kind of a startling one. John chapter 1, we'll start reading from verse 49. This is a, an early moment in the interaction between Jesus and what are going to become his 12 disciples. And this portion is, is concerning the, the, uh, the choice by the Lord and the appointment of Philip and Nathaniel as new disciples of his who are going to be among the 12. And now the Lord is speaking to Nathaniel. But starting in verse 49, Nathanael says this, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Um, this is because Jesus tells him that he saw, he saw Nathanael in verse 48 under the fig tree before he actually arrived at the fig tree. So he spiritually saw him and it impressed Nathanael to no end. And he, he kind of just blurts out, you must be the Messiah. You must be the son of God. You must be the true king of Israel that God has intended and appointed. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And of course, over the next three years, he did see many greater things than the fig tree vision. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now what's startling to me is that clearly Jesus is referencing Jacob's dream. And he's connecting Jacob's dream to what Nathanael is going to experience over the course of the next three years of carefully following the Lord as one of the twelve disciples. And the, the clear connection between the two experiences are this reference in both Jacob's dream and the description in advance now by the Lord Jesus of angels 
ascending and descending. But the difference, and this accounts for one being a type and the other being the spiritual fulfillment of that type. The difference is in Jacob's dream, what are they ascending and descending on? A ladder, which I, you know, I, I pointed out in the alternate translation, could be described as a flight of stairs, a stairway to heaven, so to speak, or more, more descriptively even than that, what I'm calling a bridge. But here, Jesus identifies the bridge with what? With the Son of Man. And we know from our studies that the phrase Son of Man, the name, the designation Son of Man, is out of all of the Old Testament names that reference prophetically the Messiah, the phrase, the designation Son of Man is the favorite one that the Lord Jesus uses to describe himself. And it's taken, of course, from the vision and prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. So let's go back there for a moment. We studied this in great detail when we studied through Daniel, but it's been, gosh, 10 years probably since we did that study. So it's worth revisiting for a moment. Daniel chapter 7, and we will read, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him, that's to the Son of Man, to him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In this vision that Daniel is granted by the Lord, the Ancient of Days is identified with the one that we call God the Father. And the Son of Man is the one that we identify as the Lord Jesus He is the Son of God, but here he is designated as Son of Man. And I've emphasized many times, I hope it's a a currently held uh, remembrance for you, that even though a, a large segment of the body of Christ identifies this vision with what we call the events in the future of the second coming of Christ, That's not what Daniel is actually prophesying about. He's actually prophesying about the first coming of Christ, not the second coming of Christ. And the portion of the first coming of Christ that he's describing is not the incarnation. It's not the beginning of the story in Bethlehem, but the end of the earthly story of the Lord Jesus in his life and ministry as he leaves earth to return to heaven what we call the ascension of Christ after his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We know from the book of Acts that he spent 40 days and 40 nights with his disciples proving to them with many conclusive proofs that he really had risen physically from the dead and was alive forevermore. But then his intention was never to stay in this world forever, 
but to ascend back to heaven in order to be enthroned on the throne of God and to receive from God both God's approval and then God's blessing to receive the fullness of the kingdom and to be installed as the king of the kingdom of heaven. So that's what's all being described here. My point is that Jesus says, as he's talking to Nathaniel, referring to Jacob's dream, you're going to see the heavens opened. And what that means is he'll be able to peer into and comprehend heavenly things that are happening, even though his natural eyes won't ever see those things while he's alive. And what he's going to see when the heavens are open, he's going to see angels of God ascending and descending, not on a physical stairway or ladder or bridge, but upon the person of the Son of Man. Now, where will that happen? Will that happen on earth or in heaven? What Jesus is talking to Nathaniel about immediately precedes Daniel's vision. He's talking to Nathaniel about things that Nathaniel will experience during the three years of Jesus' public ministry. And so what happens is Jesus is functioning during his time on earth, those three years especially of his public ministry, he's functioning as the bridge between heaven's realities and earth's needs. He's He is the focal point of all of the business of heaven, which is what the angels of God, as they're ascending and descending, it's what they're carrying out. They're carrying out the business of heaven. And Jesus is the focal point of all of heaven's concerns during those three years of his public ministry. And so he is symbolically represented by Jacob's ladder. But it's, I wanted you to see, and this is why I spent the extra time to describe it, the fullness of what that really means. It's much more than just like, when I, when I hear the word ladder, I think of that six-foot-tall metal thing that's leaning against the side of my house that I use occasionally to climb up on and you know, get something higher than I can naturally reach. It, that's just, that imagery is just insufficient to describe what Jesus is revealing to Nathaniel he's about to experience as the angels of God ascend and descend upon the one human being who functions as the bridge between all of heaven's business and the concerns of what's happening in God's purposes on earth. All right, we got three done tonight. So we will stop right there and we'll do a part two and probably at least another part after that, Lord willing, next time. God bless you. So if I went too slow, it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs>